Hello, hello, everybody. My name is David Jacobs, and this is D Stories. I'm a professional voiceover actor, and you can find me on the internet at davidjacobsvoiceover.com. Today on D Stories, I want to talk to you about how I became a teenage nerd. I was a nerd back, back in the day, before being a nerd or a geek was even a thing. I was a pretty typical kid, nothing special about me. I'm a boy, I like sports and riding my bike and hiking and messing around with my friends and music and all the typical things that you would enjoy if you were a very typical American male. But then one day, my friend's mom, who was a teacher at the time, brought home something from school for the weekend, and it was a computer. It was a Commodore PET computer. Now, we'd never seen a personal computer before. This is in the days of the Apple II. The Apple IIe had just come out. This is the very dawn of personal computing. There were only a very few around, and most people didn't know a thing about it. But they had given this school some Commodore pets to see what they could do with them in the classroom. And so she brought home the Commodore pet, and we were interested in that, and we soon found out that it played a Monopoly game. Now, of course, we like games. We loved video games. We went to the arcade all the time. We love a great video game. And so this computer had a Monopoly game. In fact, this computer was so old, it predated disk drives. Floppy disk drives, which some of you may know of, some of you may not know of. This thing had a tape recorder as a drive. I mean an audio cassette tape recorder. You pop the tape in, you hit play, and that's what loaded the program. Now, you know how fast or maybe you don't, depending on your age. But trust me, a audio tape recorder on play doesn't go very fast. It takes a long time to load a program. It had another game, too. I can't remember the other one, but the Monopoly was the one we played all the time. And we loved this thing. She would bring it home on weekends, and we'd play the games on it. It was cool. Then we discovered that our high school had a lab of new computers, a lab of new Apple IIEs. Now, what we knew by then was, oh, Commodore is whatever, but Apple II, that's the thing. That's the cream of the crop. And so we took the computer class. They taught us basic programming, and we got to mess with these Apple IIs, and it was fun. I wasn't really a programmer so much as my friends were. I just didn't take to it like them. I didn't really have the brain for it so much to, to think in code. But the computers were still fun and interesting, and we hung out and messed with these things all the time. In fact, we ended up being a part of a club that didn't exist. You know, high schools have a lot of clubs. And so all of a sudden, I believe it was our junior year, the yearbook comes out, and there's the club section, and there's a page for the computer club. And there's a picture of me and my friends in the Apple II lab. There was no computer club. It was just us hanging out. But they 
made us a club, I guess. We became the computer club. Hilarious. And so now we became obsessed with the Apple II. And we all wanted one for our homes. Oh, yeah. But the Apple II back in that day was expensive. Quite expensive. And again, nobody knew exactly what you might do with a computer at home. Especially a kid. This was back in the day when they said, oh, you can keep your home recipes on it. So I asked my parents for the Apple II, and they said, why? I mean, the thing is expensive. You know that. I mean, what are you going to do with this thing? We're not going to spend that kind of money so you can play video games. I mean, I don't, they didn't understand. Of course they didn't understand. Nobody understood what you might do with a personal computer yet. It was so new. Now, businesses could run their business off of it. There were spreadsheets and databases and things you could think of for your business, maybe. But just for your home, for your kid to have, there wasn't really any educational software yet or or much of anything. So, of course, they said, no, we're not going to spend that kind of money for for what? We uh, We don't understand what. Other than the fact that it's cool, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And of course, the other parents of my friends said, no way. It's very expensive. And what are you going to do with this thing? And so we lusted for the Apple II for a while. And I was very determined. Uh, Sometimes I get very determined for the things that I want. And I was very determined. And so I thought, what can I do? What can I do? There's no way I can save enough money or work enough small jobs to afford this thing. It's so expensive. That's just never going to happen. What else could I do? Well, it just so happened that by that time, Commodore had come out with a new computer called the Commodore 64. This was their latest and greatest computer, and this was the one that was going to compete with the Apple II. Was it as good as the Apple II? Not really, but it wasn't bad. In fact, it had better graphics. It had this thing called sprite graphics, which were these really cool color graphics for the time. And it was actually somewhat better than the Apple II. So it was not a bad computer at all. And it was like half the price. And so I thought, okay, a Commodore 64. It's not exactly what I want. It's not exactly as cool as the Apple, but it's a computer and I can mess with it, and all that stuff. And I might just be able to save enough to get it. Christmas money, birthday money, jobs around the house, what have you. If I save for long enough, it might take me a year, but it's within reason. I could get there. And so that became my goal. Commodore 64, save, work jobs, do anything I possibly could to get some money to afford this thing. I was too young at the time to work a job out in the world. But you do little jobs around the house, the neighborhood, or what have you. And so I told my parents that is what I was going to do. I said, well, I really want a computer very, very badly. There's no way I can afford the Apple II, but this Commodore 64, I think I can get there. I think I can get there if I work jobs and I save and I really work hard. I can get there, and that's what I'm going to do. So give me as many jobs and things that I can do for money 
because I'm saving for this thing. That's what I'm going to do. And I was really just very strident about it. And maybe they saw that. They saw that this wasn't just a passing fancy or a, oh, it would be cool to have this, but whatever, I'll move on to other things. This was like almost an obsession. Like, no, no, I want it really bad. It's not just a thing. It's a thing. And I want it bad. Even though I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it, it was more than just games. I don't know. I just wanted it to play with and experiment with and whatever. And then a couple weeks later, my dad says, okay, we'll get you the Apple II. Don't, don't get that Commodore 64. You told me it's really not all that great, but it'll be good enough. Don't waste your money on that. I'll get you the Apple II. That's really what you want. And this is really the thing. And this isn't just some passing fancy and you'll never touch it after the first couple of weeks. Then okay. And I was super shocked that they bought me the Apple II. I think they just wanted to know that I was serious, that it wasn't just going to be a thing where I'd play with it for a while and then get tired of it and never touch it again. That this was something going on that was more than that. And so I got the Apple II well before my friends talked their parents into it. So I became the focal point. They came over to my house a lot to play with this thing. When I first got it, that first couple of days, and it must have been the summertime or maybe a weekend, but I think it was summertime because it went into the upstairs. The upstairs in our house was my bedroom and my dad's office, which was also a spare bedroom, and it went into there. We didn't come out of that room for maybe 48 hours. The first day, we were in there all day. We didn't go to sleep. We were up all night with it all the next day. It was like crazy. My mom finally said, guys, it's going to be there. You need to at least eat something. You just take a shower. I mean, just can you 10 minutes? Maybe go outside and breathe the air? <laughs> she was just like, I get it, but this is bordering on obsession. I mean, come on now. So it must have been summer because we had the time to, to do that kind of craziness. We just like obsessed we were with this thing getting programs and this and that and um it was just fascinating wild new technology no one had ever seen this kind of thing in their home before so it was just it was fascinating to me it really perked my interest and i think that i was always a tech guy before tech was a thing I was a tech guy and a, and a gadget geek. It was always there, just waiting for the gadgets and the geek and the nerddom and the tech to come and awake that in me because I instantly took to it, like, oh, this is cool. This is awesome. But then the thing that really did it for me, because my two other friends, they were into programming and a little more of the engineering side. But I wasn't, like I said, I just it, programming wasn't for me. I didn't have the mindset or brain for it. I just, it did nothing for me, programming. Nothing. 
But then I found my place when I put a modem in that Apple II. A modem which allows you to hook your telephone line up to the computer and dial out to bulletin board systems and other information services. That is when my hair caught on fire. Immediately, I knew that was my thing. Oh, it was so exciting and adventurous. Back then, there were local BBSs everywhere. If you had an Apple II, you could get the BBS software, as I did. It was very easy to install and configure and run. And I ran one for a couple of days. But the problem with running a BBS is it has to be online, which means your telephone line is being used constantly for the BBS. If you're like my home and you have one phone line only, this does not work. Does not work. Your parents are really pissed off when they pick up the phone to make their phone call and they just hear, they're no good. What are you doing? Sorry, sorry. It doesn't work. And even calling BBSs, I had to be careful because, again, if you call the BBS, you're using the phone. And if you do this during the day, it's likely that one of your parents may pick up and then it'll screw up the connection. And again, they'll be pissed. What the hell are you doing with the phone? So sometimes you got to get on those things later at night. But calling these local BBSs was like an adventure. You never quite knew exactly what you were going to get. What's going to be on this BBS? What kind of information? What kind of people? What is this? And it was just always very exciting. And you got the feeling like you were part of this special club, this cool special club of people who called BBSs and were part of the user groups. But it was a very small number of kids that did this. And you were part of this very cool, exclusive group that knew what was going on with this. Some BBSs had just general information. A lot of BBSs had hacker information, of course. Information on how to hack phone systems, information on how to hack other computers, all kinds of stuff. Other phone numbers for allegedly government computers, military military contractors, whatever. I mean, I don't really even know if half these phone numbers were for real or not. doesn't matter. I tried a couple, and you just get a very generic nothing interface, and it says log in. I didn't get into the hacking side because I was just too freaked out by it because I knew very well it's illegal, very illegal. And if they catch you hacking in, it's not good. It's not good. And I heard little stories, especially about phone hacking, phone freaking, which, by the way, Steve Jobs himself and Steve Wozniak, who started the Apple in the first place, were phone freakers. They did all kinds of phone hacking themselves. But I heard all kinds of stories about phone hacking and phone freaks, and, you know, some of them got caught, and the FBI came to their home. Again, I don't know if any of these stories were actually true, but they were a little scary. I mean, if the FBI comes to my home because I've been jerking around with the phone system illegally, I just, my life is over, okay? It's just just not worth the risk. So that just like, nah, I don't need that. 
I mean, it does sound exciting, but nah, I don't really need to get caught right now. Let's just put that to the side and let other people take that risk. So I didn't really get into the hacking thing at all. I did get into the software piracy uh, business, though, because the other thing that was on these systems was software. Lots of software. Because kids can't afford to buy software, generally. So this is a way you can get your software, especially your games. Download it off the BBS. Lots and lots of software across these BBSs. Now, the problem is the connection is very, very, very slow. 300 baud, then 600, then 1,200 baud was the, ooh, you're fast now. That's like 50 times slower than what we have today. To download the average game would take you all night, 8 to 12 hours. No joke. You'd have to download it before you go to bed, and when you wake up, it'll be done. It takes hours and hours and hours, which is also why it was very difficult to get a connection to these BBSs because most of them didn't have more than two or three phone lines. And so if you got a guy who's on there for 10 hours downloading software, well, that line is taken up for 10 hours. So they were often jammed for hours and hours at a time. You would just call and it busy, busy, busy. This is how the war dialer started. You may or may not have heard the term war dialer. This is how it came to be, because it's a real pain in the butt to keep calling a BBS over and over and over again for hours and hours. So someone wrote a program that said, dial this phone number every three minutes or what have you until you get a connection. And it just sits there and dials and dials and dials and dials, and you're off doing whatever you want to do, and it'll dial for hours and hours if it needs to until it finally connects. That's a war dialer. But that was part of the adventure, too. Ooh, can I get into this BBS? This BBS is so cool that it's almost impossible to get into. Can I get into it? Again, an exclusive club that's always jammed, right? So if you can get in, it's like, oh, yeah, I made it. Part of it was just, just the adventure and the excitement of being part of something brand new that nobody else knew about a special, almost secret club. So BBSs were flourishing. But then something else came along. Larger information services. These were run by very large, large companies. They had hundreds and hundreds, thousands probably, of dial-in lines and computers. It wasn't like the BBS. Anyone could call. It, they were always open. And the two big ones at the time were the Source and CompuServe. I know many of you will remember CompuServe. That was the big one. But the Source is what I had. I don't remember why. Uh, somehow I convinced my parents into uh, getting me one of these. And for some reason at the beginning I had the Source uh, and not CompuServe. But they were pretty much the same. And these huge information systems you would dial into, and they had all kinds of things. They had forums, as we know them today, online forums, and they had other kinds of information. I think they had some very rudimentary games, but not much. And then the big draw was the chat rooms. The interactive live chat rooms were really the big draw, where you could jump into a room and have a chat text conversation with 
all kinds of people, not too uncommon from what we do today. Now, the difference with the large information services is they charged by the minute. Oh, yes, they charged by the minute, if you can imagine. And so the business model says, keep you online for as long as I can. And one of the best ways to keep people online is to get them involved in the chat room. Because once you start chatting, it's very easy to lose track of time. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, an hour has gone by. What, what, what have I been doing? Those chat rooms, they made so much money off those rooms. And a lot of those rooms were as so many things are with technology, especially when it's new, they revolved around sex. You jump onto these rooms and you start interacting with someone and often one of the very first things, if not the first thing they're going to say to you is M or F, male or female. They want to know who they're talking to. Now the truth is these systems are dominated by men. It's probably 90% men at this time. And a lot of these guys, men, are like me. They're young guys. Because who's into tech at this time? At the very, very early, early days, it's a lot of young guys like me. That's who's there, predominantly. So what do horny teen guys want to do? They want to talk to girls. So this was a really funny dichotomy. M or F? M or F, what are you going to say? If you say M, most likely they're going to go away. Immediately or very quickly. If you say F, the very next question you're probably going to get is, what are you wearing? It just devolves immediately, you know? And I don't know what we're thinking. Now, as a grown man, mature adult, I can look back and say, what? If it really was a girl, what do you expect her to say? What we want her to say is, oh, I'm wearing a very small teddy and no pants. You think an actual girl is going to be saying that? It's what we want them to say. It's what we fantasize they will say to us. But is that what a girl's actually going to say to you? Some random dude that they met online and they don't know from Adam. Probably not. But this chat world is run on fantasy. And it's so strange. And after a while, you have to realize that there's mostly dudes on here, 90% most likely. The, it's far and away the most likely thing that you're talking to another guy. Eventually, people figure this out, and so they become very suspicious. Really? And then you have to sort of prove that you're a female somehow, or it gets very weird where you're not really quite sure 
uh, and what to do about all that. It's just, it's so odd. But that's what was going on. And a lot of guys, I think because we were bored. What can we do? There are no girls out there to talk to. So we're kind of bored. We're on this system. We want something to do. So what the hell? I'm going to say F. And then I'm going to say something really seductive like, oh, I'm wearing a really short cropped shirt or whatever. And then the guy's going to keep going and then you'll just keep going. You just keep leading them on and saying crazy things and seeing how far you can take it. And most of these guys just buy it hook, line, and sinker, you know. In a way, it's kind of fun because you're playing a role now. Now you're playing this role of this girl, and you've got to make stuff up about her. Where do I live? What do I do? What do I like? What's in my room? Uh, you know, all kinds. You've got to create this life for this fantasy girl that you're going to talk to this guy about that's going to entice him and keep him going, and you can just lead him along down the primrose path. It's a little bit of power that you have. I think that was part of the excitement, is you actually get a little bit of, of power. You're controlling this guy now. After a while, you can get him to do whatever you want him to do, because now this is a back-and-forth erotic conversation. You can suggest all kinds of things for him to do or him to think about or consider, and you're sort of in the power position of controlling him, and a guy is dumb. A guy will do whatever a girl tells him to do, especially when you're in an erotic conversation with her. And I think that was part of the thrill for the guys that did that. I did that once or twice because it was fascinating. It was so interesting intellectually to me. And it was fun to put on a role. And I can bring this all the way back to voice acting. I'm a voice actor. And as voice actors, we put on roles. We decide who we are and who we're talking to when we are voicing a script. And now that I think about it, it's the same thing. Put on a role. Who are you? You know who you're talking to because he just said his name was Jim and he lives in Texas or whatever. But now who am I? And you create this life for this fantasy girl. It's kind of wild. So maybe it's not so odd that I became a voice actor because even back then, it was fun to put on a role and play a character for somebody and then watch them react off of it, see what you could do with it. That was a lot of what these information services had going on, frankly. There was other things. Of course, there were many other things you could do that were interesting. But really, it was the erotic chat that drove probably a great deal of business because you're paying by the minute. And now you're talking to this hot girl from Georgia and you're just going to keep going. You're not going to let that go. Amazing. But this is what lit my fire, as I said, for technology. It wasn't the technology for its own sake like my friends. It wasn't the programming or the engineering or the hardware or any of that stuff. That was just, for me, a means to an end. 
what got me going was the connection and the, and the communication that I could jump on to these information services and talk to virtually anyone across the world. There was a guy I talked to once from India. I don't remember how we got connected somehow, but he was from India, and it was fascinating, and he was telling me about the things that he did for a living and what went on there, and it was just this really interesting conversation. I thought, wow, man, I'm talking to some guy from India, a place I've never been, and I'm having this really cool, real conversation. It wasn't, you know, anything weird. It was just two guys who were, you know, interested in crossing cultures. Everything wasn't sorted. <laughs> and man, that was exciting and cool. And that's, that's what got me going in tech was the, as I say one more time, the connection, the communication. And I started to think even back then about how this would impact culture and humanity and the world in general and psychology and that's really the heart of why I love tech. It's what Steve Jobs said, the intersection of technology and the humanities. That's it. I live at the same street corner that he does because that's what does it for me, that intersection of tech and humanities, of creativity of culture, of society, psychology, humanity, everything that makes it all go, and how that impacts is endlessly awesome and fascinating for me. That's what gets my hair on fire about this stuff. So from there, what happens is I have the Apple II, and I'm finishing high school, I'm getting into college. Somehow, at the very end I remember it being the end of high school and possibly before I even got to college. Somehow, I got myself into a Mac SE. So the Macintosh has showed up now. Very, very early Macintoshes. The first graphical interface, a mouse. It's a revolution like nobody has ever seen. Wow. Clearly, this is the computer to get. Windows isn't even there. Maybe Windows 1, I think, is out or 2, but it's nothing. The Mac is the thing. I don't know how I afforded it, how I swung it. I think it's possible that I had a real job by then, so I was making some actual real money, possibly. But somehow I swung and got the Mac SE, one of the very first Macs. And it was awesome. I mean, it's a tiny screen. It's black and white. But it's awesome. And I take this thing to college. And I'm one of the only people um, at college with a computer. Some people have them, but not a lot. But I've got one, and it's cool because I can write my papers on it. And it's actually super useful because I don't handwrite very well. I have dyslexia, and my handwriting is very, very poor, and it's kind of painful to write. So being able to write my papers on a computer is a lifesaver for me, an absolute lifesaver. And there's cool games. I remember in college playing these cool games, like these adventure games on the Mac. 
Uh, there was one where, you know, typical game, you have insomnia. And you wake up, and you're in an alleyway, and you're kind of messed up and beat up, and you don't know who you are or where you are or what is going on. And you got to walk around and start to piece together what's going on. Who are you? Why? What's going on? And you just piece together little clues, and you get little clues as to who you are, and you got to piece this mystery together. And it takes, you know, days and days and weeks and weeks. And we were all playing this game together, and it was so fun. You play this game for a while, and then we're walking around doing our school, but always thinking in our head, hmm, I wonder what that guy said. What does that mean? What's that object I picked up? That's got to be important somehow. And you're always trying to piece it together as you're going through your day. And then you get back to the computer at night. It's like, okay, let me try this. And we're exchanging information like, hey, man, did you see that guy? Did you talk to him? What did he say to you? It's just so much fun, these games. Um, And so the computer is the Mac SE for quite a while, quite a many, many years. And then after that, I just get a series of different Macintoshes through the years until Apple um, kind of fell down a hole when Steve Jobs left and all those crazy, you know, Mike Spindler and these odd CEOs took over and pretty much tanked the company. Um... So that period, I, I, I had to leave Apple. They were putting out garbage machines. The whole thing was just coming apart. And so I had a PC for a while because Apple was just in the wilderness. So it's funny now to see nerddom, geekdom. It's cool now. It's cool to be a nerd and a geek. It's accepted And it's a subculture. But I was a nerd and a geek way, way before that happened. I was one of those kids lined up. Lined up for the very first Star Wars movie. We didn't know quite exactly what was going to go on. But we knew it was cool. I was there for the first Star Trek movie. We all knew Star Trek was what we watched the TV show. The excitement for that first Star Trek movie was just palpable. And my parents went. I don't know if I made them go or, you got to see this, come with me. And we went to the theater in Newport Beach, California, and the line wrapped around the building like twice. And so we had to get there really early, and we stood around forever. It was a big thing, and we saw this movie, and it sucked. It sucked, and my parents said, what? was that? And I had to say, I'm so sorry. I don't know what that was. That was terrible. I'm sorry. That was awful. We stood around and went through all this for, oh, nothing. But I don't know. The TV show is really good. I don't know what happened to the movie. And I am really glad that there are so many more girls now in the geek nerd community. Like I said, it was all guys back then. Only guys liked computers back then. It just wasn't a thing for girls. But thank goodness, now, girls can come play just as hard as guys can in this world. And it's so great that it's more equal. It shouldn't be dominated by dudes. And so I'm very happy to see that the culture grew And girls can be as nerdy as guys can, and it's awesome. 
I remember one of my first jobs in Silicon Valley, working at tech companies, and it's all guys. But every once in a while, you get the little sprinkling of a girl who would show up, who's like, you know, technically oriented and knows a little code. And it's like, oh, thank God, you're here. And very slowly, girls started to infiltrate the technology world. And one of the things we did, since we were stupid teenage guys, the whole Mac versus PC thing was going on back at that time. Steve Jobs versus Bill Gates. Microsoft versus Apple. PC versus Mac. That whole thing was going down hard. People were taking sides. Of course we took sides. We were Mac people. We were Apple people to the core. We knew we were right. We knew our machines were better. No question about it. So we got into those little wars and felt that way. And we would go, you know... When I was a kid, they used to sell computers at Macy's. Yes, Macy's had a little computer department upstairs in the corner. So we'd go to the Macy's computer department, and they had mostly PCs. We knew a little bit of programming because we'd taken that basic programming class in high school with our Apple II lab. And so we'd go to the PCs, and we'd hit Control-C, which breaks the program that they're running, Sometimes they're running some sort of a demo that just has screens that go by that whatever. So we break that program, and we write ourselves a new program, and it's stupid. We're dumb guys. The program is dumb. You number your lines, so it's like 10, buy an apple, 20. This is line numbers, 10, 20. You do them in 10s, usually. 20, go to 10, and then run. And it creates a loop. And the whole screen just fills up with buy an apple, buy an apple, and it's just scrolling endlessly, buy an apple, buy an apple. And we write that program, we run it on all the PCs. So all the PCs are just scrolling buy an apple, buy an apple. And we walk away, and we think we're so cool. <laughs> we're so cool, we played this awesome trick. And we're hoping that the people who are selling the PCs aren't smart enough to know how to break that program and you know stop it or whatever. Eh, they probably are, but what if they aren't? That'd be hilarious, right? They have to like turn off the whole computer to get our program to stop. You know, we're just, you know, we're dumb dudes. But I remember all that, too. And we would do that anywhere we could. Anywhere we could find computers that were being sold in retail, we would do that. Buy an apple, buy an apple. We'd just do that to all the PCs we could find. And we thought we were so clever. <laughs> oh, man. It was good times. It was such good times, man. And so I think that's my story. I was a teenage nerd before there were teenage nerds. It was a great time, so much fun to watch the PC industry be born and then grow and then literally change life and society. And we were right there. We were right there in the center of it. We were a part of it. And that's so exciting. It's the same feeling I get about podcasting. I was there at the dawn of podcasting. I was one of the first 50 people to podcast. And I was a part of that revolution, as I have talked about before. And being a part, my little part of the PC revolution, 
being there, right in the mix. God, it's exciting, man. It's exciting to be part of a revolution and to witness it right from the inside. Thrilling. One of the most thrilling things I've done in my life is be part of that. I mean, I was part of several, if you really want to get down to it. The PC, birth of the PC, I'm right there in the center of it. The birth of the internet, I'm also right there in the center of it. I was one of the very first webmasters, one of the very, very first corporate webmasters. And I watched the birth of the web and was my little tiny part of it as a webmaster. God, exciting. You knew this was going to totally change the world, and you were right there making it happen with other people. And then, of course, as I've talked about before, right there at the birth of podcasting, playing my little part, being part of a revolution that we knew, again, was going to change the world. It's crazy. You might say that I was in the center of three revolutions, the birth of the PC, the internet and the web, and podcasting. That's incredible. For me, that's incredibly exciting. Being in the center of a technology revolution, wow, how lucky have I been to be right there at the forefront of some of the most exciting things and some of the most impactful things that truly have changed our world. It's wild, man. Thank you very much for listening. I very much appreciate it. And again, I am a professional voiceover actor, as I mentioned. I put on roles. I've been putting on roles since I was in high school, you might say. Um, DavidJacobsVoiceOver.com is the website. You can find out all the information about me. Email me, David, at DavidJacobsVoiceOver.com. Let's talk. Let's talk about what you need and what I can do. Anyway, thank you very much. We'll be back all this year. More stories, new stories. So don't go anywhere. Subscribe if you're not subscribed. So you don't have to remember the shows will just drop magically into your podcast. Talk to you next time. Thank you.